0: The Paul Leslie Hour. Helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to yet another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. Purveyors of fine interviews for more than 14 years now. Hello to Chase Higginbotham, frequent listener of ours. Thank you for all of the positive comments. It really keeps me going. On this episode, we're going to be playing an interview that I did with J.D. Souther. This goes back to February 15th, 2009. We were talking at the restaurant inside the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia. It had been 25 years since J.D. Souther had released a solo album. He had just come out with this album, If the World Was You. Man, what a fantastic album that is. Very interesting songs. I have that album on vinyl and CD. Two musicians, Chris Walters and Jim Mayer, had pretty much arranged for this interview to happen. J.D. Souther does not do a lot of interviews, and so it was very thrilling. I have fun memories of getting to talk to him. Since then... J.D. Souther was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. That was in 2013. I was very happy to hear about that. And it was really, really cool. He invited me to a concert up in Nashville, which I'm very glad I made the trip. Because unbeknownst to me at the time, it became a live album. And I have that album as well. It's called Rain, Live at the Belcourt Theater really cool blend of his old songs and his new songs a lot of you know his hit song you're only lonely from 1979 and he's also known for a lot of the songs that he co-wrote and that were recorded by other people for example the eagles he wrote best of my love heartache tonight one of my favorite eagles songs new kid in town Linda Ronstadt has recorded his songs, Bonnie Raitt has recorded his songs, he co-wrote something with James Taylor, he even co-wrote a couple of songs with Jimmy Buffett, which I think is pretty interesting. Anyhow, let's take you to that night, February 15th, 2009, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, prior to his concert at Eddie's Attic, my interview with the great J.D. Souther. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: we're here at the Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta, Georgia. And it is with great pleasure that we welcome singer and songwriter, Mr. J.D. Souther. On behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Very much, and I apologize for the fact that I'm still eating. We're sort of squeezed in between the meal and the concert, so...
1: I think most stories are best from the beginning... So I'd like to ask you, what were your early musical influences?
2: I was born a small child. Uh, my grandmother, my father's mother was an opera singer. And uh, her parents were Gilbert and Sullivan singers. My dad was a big band singer. So I'm quite sure the first thing I heard was probably Puccini. And um, and, and then as I was growing up in my house, we heard all the songwriters. You know, Gershwin Cole Porter, Matt Dennis... Harold Arlen, Rogers and Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart. I just, uh, we grew up in a house where music was played all the time. I think the first song I knew all the way through was the uh, Frank Sinatra's version of the soliloquy from Carousel. My boy, Bill, well, he's a little as I think he will. You know, wait a minute, what if he, Is a she? What a girl you've got. And then it changes tones, it's this beautiful ballad then. I think it's probably the first song, except for maybe the Nessun Dorma from Turandot. That's probably the first song I knew all the way through.
1: Can you remember a time in your life when you knew you were going to be a musician?
2: I can't remember a time when I wasn't going to be a musician. It goes back that far. Yeah, I just don't... I think If there was a plan B, it was to race Formula cars, Formula One cars, and there was real no, no real entry point in the Texas Panhandle to open-wheel racing, so...
1: I was hoping you could tell us a little uh, about your memories from the apartment you shared with Glenn Fry.
2: It was too damn small.
1: And uh, Jackson Brown lived beneath you.
2: Well, he said, chewing away at this delicious fresh fish. Uh, Glenn and I had a, had a place um, upstairs. Jackson had a place down below which had one window, after which I think his publishing company was named, Open Window Music. Jackson moved out first because he got the first record deal. He got a deal with Asylum. He got a little house by the Hollywood Bowl on Camrose Court. I moved down into his apartment, so Glenn had the upstairs to himself. I had the downstairs. Then I got a deal with Asylum because Jackson took me to David Geffen's house. and He said I played him two songs and played two most obscure songs I could possibly pull out of my repertoire. And he went, yeah, I'm not sure why he played me those, but you're great. You're a good songwriter. Yes, you got a deal. So then I got another little house. It was actually across uh, the drive from where Jackson's house was. It was on a place called Camrose Court. And um, so Jackson and I heard each other writing all of our early stuff. We were probably influenced as much by each other Certainly, I was by him also was influenced enormously by a, a woman I knew the name Judy Sill, who died later, but who was the I think the second artist signed to asylum and she was brilliant uh, I think she was miles ahead of any of us as a songwriter at the time, and she and I loved each other, and I really cared for each other's music too, and nurtured it and uh, we were also both Bach freaks, so she would, she would be the woman that he would be playing some on the piano and she'd come bustling out of the bedroom and say, no, 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 no. leave the third out. Put the third on the bottom. Put the third in the bass. Leave it out of the top. Don't play the triad. Just play the one and the five. You move them around. And she was a very uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful girl. And really influential for me. And also I heard Tim Harden about that time. And I think... Tim Harden is probably the logical connective tissue between jazz and uh, acoustic guitar songwriting.
1: If you had to pick a genre, what would you say your favorite type of
2: music is? Jazz. And why would that be? Because it's so open-ended. It just doesn't I mean there may have been a there may have been periods sort of fusion whatever crap periods in the in the 80s or so where it seemed to have some there was the illusion of no restrictions, but it actually had some. I think in general, uh jazz as far back as you can go, King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Art Tatum, doesn't matter how far back you go, right up to to now, to watching the you know, the young bloods in jazz, Jamie Cullum and and, and Chris Body and, and even Diana Krall and uh, the young players now, Jeff Coffin and and uh, you you see that jazz is as Joseph Campbell would have said, tra- transparent to transcendence. It's completely open at the top. Given the structure, given the schooling, given the education, given the background, given the time put into like learning what to, how to handle this thing you're holding, you can play anything you want. And uh, I don't think there are very many uh, genres or formats, or whatever you call them, where that's in- not only encouraged, but where that really is the holy grail. Although I think, I don't have any real genre prejudice about music. You know, Duke Ellington once said, there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. Yeah. And I very much agree. We were talking earlier about singers, and I told you that I, I had heard Sinatra my whole life, but when I heard Ray Charles, like my world changed because of my respect. Although I I'd respected Sinatra, he was a great jazz singer all, all his life. I mean, try to sing along with the Sinatra record. You'll miss all the entrances. Even if you think you know those records and you memorized them, he's just wherever he is against the back, it's perfect, and he can find it. And maybe you can, and maybe you can't. You know, but he, but he was the older guys. You know, he was that was who my parents liked. By the time I moved to California and started making music, he was making "Strangers in the Night" and very different kinds of records. You know, but when I was uh, young and I heard uh, Ray Charles, and I just thought, wow, singing is singing his music as much as anything else. And then I realized that Ray Charles was also probably the one of the most influential piano players in American history, and great arranger, great writer. And, and uh, I think he's the, actually the titan of the, the last uh, latter half of the 21st century in American music. I think it's the arc of my emotional life is musically prescribed by Ray Charles' music. I listened to it Ceaselessly, when I was a kid, I was listening to it uh, three weeks ago when I was home in Nashville for a week. I had, gee, uh, what is it, uh, Soul Plus, uh, So what's the one with uh, Quincy wrote all the charts? Anyway, I, I was I had that one in, I had Modern modern Sounds of Country and Western, and the live album from uh, Atlanta where he's singing Megan Whoopi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which has got to be the, the seminal version of that song. You know and uh, I, I love it just as much now as I ever did. I think he's the he's the great teacher in music for me.
1: When you started out
2: as a professional musician,
1: what was it that you envisioned?
2: I have <clears throat> Wow when I started out as a professional, that would have to be pretty young because when I was fifteen, even though I was listening to rock and roll like crazy and I'd already discovered Orbison and Buddy Holly and all all the local guys in Texas because I was in Amarillo by then. And, there were great rockabilly musicians all around but i was I, what i was playing for a living was uh, i was playing uh, just casuals you know uh, uh, which means you know one-nighters for those who don't know with whatever jazz group they could assemble anywhere which usually was guys in the 30s and 40s and i was i was just getting my learner's permit so i think at the time i was listening to a lot of miles and uh, a lot of Horace Silver, and, and I, I think I probably thought that when I was a grown-up, whatever that would have meant to a 14 or 15, 16-year-old kid, that I would be living in Paris and <laughs> uh, you know, playing drums in a jazz club, uh, hopefully with Miles or somebody like that, and smoking a lot of dope and having great-looking French women. And that was pretty much my, my aspiration at that moment. Pretty standard dreams. I think so, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Certainly shared by the... There were only three of us kids in Amarillo, Texas who really played jazz, but that's pretty much what we all hoped for. Right. So,
1: your songs have been covered by a lot of people. Is there one in particular that you're especially proud of, the cover that they did? When you heard it, you thought, that was a good rendition of
2: what I wrote. I hear that a lot, because I've been... You know, I was lucky. I I I had... great singers and great record makers who were friends, you know. Linda Ronstadt made fantastic records of my songs, you know, and I think, think her instrument, that voice of hers, wow, it's, it still just staggers me. She made a jazz album two years ago with George Massenburg that still is killer. I think it's called Humming to Myself. It's got some Rosemary Clooney stuff on it. Stuff she loved Rosemary, so there's some things that she did on it, and a uh, great version of Miss Otis Regrets. Yeah, she, she she pretty much nailed everything she did. Eagles made fantastic records. They still make fantastic records. I mean, their first number one record was a song that was Best of My Love. And last year when they put out a new album, the first single was mine again. You know, I'm the fish, they the test fish, I think they throw out, see if the water's all right. So And they always make great, great records of my songs. They're great singers and great arrangers and great record makers. Uh, the most interesting one, I'd have to say, was uh, Hugh Masekela's record of Best of My Love. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know if it's still in print, but I was in the studio in, in Hollywood, and Jackson came running in, and he said, uh, do you want to meet uh, Hugh Masekela? And I said, sure, I'd love to. Is he playing someplace? And he goes, well, he's actually playing your song right next door in the next studio. Oh. And I went, no way. So I ran it over, and he was a great guy, just a delightful guy. And he didn't know all the verses, so he didn't sing them. He just sang the first verse. Played the other verses, and then he and his girls sang the choruses. But there's a lot of good records. I mean, the Dixie Chicks made a great record of "I'll Take Care of You," on uh, it's on the uh, Wide Open Spaces album, huge album. And that was a song would never in the world have occurred to me to sing three part harmonies. It's a little song I wrote on piano, you know. And I'm generally pretty much delighted with. I've had people make great records of mine. Songs and I never take it for granted. I, I'm like Paul Williams is a friend of mine, and we we both are of the same mind in that anytime someone just that you haven't pitched it, that someone just picks one of your songs and sings it, it's already a compliment, you know. And however they interpret it is another thing. Sometimes you like it better than other times, but it's it's still fabulous, you know. I mean, I thought every version of Faithless Love. Had been sung that could be sung. I think there's 25 records of it or something, including one in uh, an Indian one. Oh. And I don't mean American Indian. I mean Indian one. And uh, there's there's a four part harmony one. I think by the Modern Folk Quartet and Lynn Anderson cut it and Glenn Campbell cut it in the 80s and was uh, were nominated for a Grammy for country record of the year, country song of the year. It's been just recorded by everybody, but. Bernadette Peters made a beautiful and tender and uh, very sparse record of it that actually, I think, kills me more than any of them. Hmm. You just never know. I mean, I didn't know until this year that Tom Jones had recorded a song of mine. Really? Yeah. And uh, I, I found it somewhere out there. You know.
1: It's always a tough question I've noticed for songwriters, but could you
2: pick a favorite of the ones that you've created? no. No. Uh, I mean, I, probably at the moment, yeah, I think it's the last thing on the new album, which is the last thing written, called The Secret Handshake of Fate. But generally, no, I can't. I was doing an interview once, and and uh, Warren Zevon was at my house. And Warren was the king of, uh, of uh, brevity. He and my friend Thomas McGuane, the novelist, are, are just for economy and wit. You can't beat these two guys. So, someone had just asked me a question, what's your favorite song? And I went, my favorite song? And Zivon, who just wanted to go eat dinner, said, tell him it's the shortest one. <laughs> and uh, I, so I picked uh, Simple Man, Simple Dream, because Warren had been doing it on stage. and So, that's yeah, a good song. That's all right. But uh, I, I always like the new ones best, because I haven't heard him as much.
1: Yeah. Is there any particular reason that you... I hope this doesn't seem too pointed, but the, you, you took a while to come out with a new album.
2: Well, you know, if I write a book, I'll tell you what happened in those 20 years, but the reason that I cut this album now is because the material was there, and because and I found these players, and, you know, I don't know who said it, Wendell Berry probably, or uh, maybe uh, Stafford, but one of the poets just said, poetry comes up when it can. You know, you can't you can't always direct it. Sometimes things are just better than they are other times. and This batch of songs... Actually, this album really started in Cuba in 1998. I was in Havana for a week. In, uh, profoundly rich musical environment. And Also, a great week to be there. We were there the week that Rod Cooter and Ben Benders were down there premiering the movie of Buena Vista Social Club. And Also, we saw the Social Club play with all of us before any of them started dying off we saw him play a set at the Charlie Chaplin Theater. And it might be the most interesting and one of, one of the most powerful musical sets I've ever seen. And I, I mean, I've seen good music. I've seen Miles on a lot of good nights. I've seen Ray Charles a few times. I've seen Pavarotti. I've seen some great stuff, you know. But seeing the social club there in Cuba was really remarkable even, really remarkable. And also, you know, I was a drummer. I told you before, I grew up... Yeah. I was a drummer, and my dad was a Tito Puente fan, and uh, I loved uh, all the and I was the guy that had the, uh, the hit with Herbie's song, Watermelon Man, Mongo Santa Maria. I always loved African rhythms and Afro-Cuban rhythms, and being in Havana for a week was just like, wow, it's like being saturated with things that never stop moving. First of all, the women are incomprehensibly beautiful. Uh, Cuban women are just, a, there's something genetic there that's just, they're wild and, and gorgeous. And it seems like everybody sings, dances, or plays, or all three. Yeah. And those rhythms are just everywhere. And uh, I just came back with a full-on case of infection. I, there's no way to inoculate against that for me. And I, I think that was the seed of this album, although there's a, there are two songs that are a little older than that. They're from the year before, actually, I think The Border Guard and In My Arms Tonight maybe from 97, but everything else is 98, 99, and then again, a couple years ago when I made the album, I started really assembling songs, because I've always got hundreds just scattered around words and scratches on score paper and odd tunings and guitars, and I'm surrounded with the, the detritus of my own sort of trail of Uh, thoughts and experiments and now there's just a moment where I I feel certain, I don't know, some kind of magnetism pulls certain things together and these things were all pulling in the same direction and also I just got lonesome for jazz and I started going out to jazz clubs and I found that Nashville, Tennessee, though people who don't live there might not think it, has a wealth of great jazz players including a really really, um, thriving jazz workshop there where there's always good good music where they're, they're, they're playing jazz most weekends and they're teaching jazz and then I met all these guys, I met Chris Walters and, and uh, you know Jeff Coffin and Rod McGaha and Dan Emmel and Jim Mayer and I know you've had Chris and Jim on your show and Jim White this fabulous drummer from Georgia who's up in Colorado teaching jazz now but uh, these guys all just inspired me and I got them all out to the Blues Barn which is what I call my barn, my studio and um, it it just clicked, you know. It was a good it was a good team. They were they were first of all as players they're killing every all of them are just killing. And second of all it was the first time I'd had that kind of ensemble together around my music. And I, I always wanted to feel like I was a good band leader. You know, I never. I had good guitar bands in the past. You know, but I, but I had great guitar players that were sort of at the head of them. Waddy Wachtel or Josh Leo or somebody was generally or a keyboard player Vince Melamed. Somebody was usually sort of designated as the musical director. Right. So that I could just you know go off and, and and be uh I could just deliver the songs and sort of throw arrangement ideas in, give them the voicings I liked, and and disappear into my own. My own world, and come back and find things at least, at least together enough for me to, uh, for for me to tweak them in rehearsals. Although that that's not the those guys. That wouldn't be their memory of it. I mean, they they called one of their tours. They called the band Hitler's damaged pets. Which I have a feeling was not flattering to me. But uh, for this album, for if the world was you, I just had a bunch of. I had a great. I, you know, I had a great ensemble of players. I had the little quintet, the little horn quintet that I'd always wanted to have. That was reminiscent of the 59 to sixty-one Miles Davis band, where it was two horns and uh, a really uh, a, a broadly influenced piano player and a solid rhythm section. And but I don't, I didn't think a songwriter had ever made that kind of album. I certainly never heard one. In fact, I'm pretty sure know what he did. And I just thought it would i thought it was the next logical expansion for want of a better word.
1: the first song on the album I really like it kind of uh,
2: that's the safest one yeah it's a it, good place to start
0: It is
1: a good place to start. It's kind of sad, kind of happy at the same time uh I it also has
2: that little uh fanfare in the beginning too, which tells you there's gonna be horns on this album you know it has that little intro da 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 da. Then the song comes, you know. But it's pretty safe territory to start start with. It's kind of just uh, straight eighth note music, and you know, verse, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus. It's it's not uh, it's not too, uh, as my friend Jeffrey Cox would put it, it's not too challenging.
1: Yeah.
2: And then you know, later on, things get a little crazier and crazier. But.
1: And then the second song has Bela Fleck on it.
2: Indeed, it does. Yeah, it was written for him, for him and Jeff and Rod, and Rod to play. Yeah.
1: House of Pride. Yeah. So you mentioned that the the last the last track, the Secret Handshake of Fate, that's your favorite song mm. on the album. Mm. The
2: the I think it was the third song that has kind of like a, a Latin feel to it. Is that the one? There's a lot of Afro-Cuban sound and stuff. The third one is probably Journey Down the Nile. Yeah, it actually has a Cuban uh, that that rhythm pattern. is called Songa, I think. It's a it's a left uh, le- Left. It's just a way of of moving the bass line down in this in this particular rhythmic structure. It's Chris Walter's idea. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And we played it with that and without. We played it very straight. Boom. 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 Without that thing too, and it just seemed to work better with it. So. When somebody listens to this
1: record, or when they come out and they hear you perform, what is it that you hope that the listener gets out of
2: the experience? Geez, I don't know. I hope they get laid when they get home. You know? I mean, uh, I have no idea. I, mean, I, I, I know what I expect when I go out, or what I want when I go hear music. I just want to be thrilled. I want to be absorbed. Yeah. So I, I hope that's... That's what I believe in. This kind of remorseless absorption in the moment. So I hope that's what's happening when we're playing. Or in this tour, in the case of just me playing, you know, by myself, uh, it's, it's not going to be as textured as it will be later in the summer with the band. But it seemed like a kind of a good audience-friendly way to go back on the road after all these years. And that would I think people feel comfortable, and they feel like uh, the people that are not so. Uh, comfortable with jazz because every everyone isn't. They don't know what it is. They they envision something confusing and difficult. And of course it isn't. It's you just all you got to go along. You know, you know it's a it's a it's a Ferris wheel. It goes with you whether you're driving or not. It's going to get there. But for this tour, I just thought, well, if I if I've just got me and my three or four Gibsons out there and a grand piano, I can move around, play whatever I, anything comes to mind. I can play. I don't have to have a set sheet and think about where it's going to go or I can just uh, sort of loon around on stage and play whatever pops into my head. So that way I'll I'll play songs that are, you know, I'll play songs nobody's ever heard of and I'll play songs that were big hits and uh, I hope I I weave them all together into what's a good set. It's a little more difficult for me to be sure because I tend to chatter between songs and Doodle around with the piano. Last night was Valentine's Day, so I played my funny Valentine. And, nice. and like I told you I might do a Duke <laughs> Ellington songs tonight. I, I, I don't know. I never know what's going to happen. You know, last last time I was out, I was doing a George Jones song. So I, I never know. But I know there's a lot more songs of mine than I have time to play. So I'm not going to get to everything people want to hear. So, uh, but I, I, you know, I'll be back again. <laughs> There's a song that you co-wrote
1: that I've always liked called The Good Fight. With Jimmy. With Yeah, with, with Mr. Yeah. Buffett. And you've written another song with him, I think. Uh, yeah, Living It Up. Living It Up. <clears throat> and you narrated his uh, his uh, audio, audio book. I did read a book for him,
2: yeah. Yeah, that was Jane's idea, actually, I think. How did you meet Mr. Buffett? I can't even remember. We we're probably too high to remember. but <laughs> you know, I guess it was probably in Aspen in the early 70s, mid-70s. This might seem like a, a this, this
1: is a question that a lot of people actually have trouble answering, but what is it that you like about music? Everything. Everything. Yeah. Okay, you've had the chance to play in a lot of different places, and you've had a chance to travel to different places around the world. What is your all-time favorite place that you've been
2: to? To play music or just to be? Both. Different answers. I haven't, I've only played one little set for, uh, uh, I, I went to Montana to do a rock the vote, thing for Obama before the last election, but I have to say at the moment, well, my all time favorite place is anywhere along the California coastline. I just know it really well. I know that coastline from Mexico to Oregon and I'm pretty much north of there too. And, uh, I love it. I just adore it. There's something so fresh and, and bold and, and uninhibited about that weather coming off the Pacific Ocean onto the West Coast. It's the first time that weather's hit land since Hawaii, you know. And I'm just, I'm crazy about it. But lately I've been going to Montana, and uh, i got two or three friends that live in a small town in Montana, and I, I, I love it there. The sky's still big and clean. and It's got that nice kind of blend of people now. There's been enough generations of hippies marrying rednecks that, you know, that it's got this kind of, it's got this sort of frontiersman edge, this rough edge on it, but there's a, a real uh, serious intellectual undercurrent there. There's this town I'm talking about is about ten, 000, twelve thousand 12,000 people, and there's 30 or 40 published writers there. So you're never at a loss for a good conversation. It's, it's the, it is what they call it, the last great place. It's pretty amazing. Although I, you know, there's a lot of places. I love the Scottish Highlands. I love Paris <laughs> in the springtime. <laughs> I, I'm, you know, every place I've been, I always think I could live there. I mean, the first time I went to Japan, I thought, gee, I could live here. It's fun going places in <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Well, I've moved to a lot of those places. You know, I've lived in Texas, Colorado. God, not Japan for very long, but uh, longer than certainly longer than the tour lasted and the village in New York and three towns in California and almost moved everything up to Seattle once just because I really liked the weather which nobody understands but I did and uh, I, I went to play uh, the main line in in Pennsylvania once uh, it's near Bryn Mawr which you should probably know is a college uh, filled with beautiful women and uh, I almost bought a big house there just because I I like the place and I like the visuals so much. and I always think I could live in Manhattan or outside Manhattan. I don't know if I could deal with Manhattan around the clock but you know if you live upstate or in Connecticut or something, all you can do is get on a train and 50 minutes later you're midtown. So I like every place. I love where I grew up. You know I, I go home to Amarillo even though my parents are dead now and it's, it doesn't have the same feeling it did before. I always fly in in the mid-afternoon so I can drive out to the west side of town and watch the sunset and, I I I just I love physicality. I, I love the land in a lot of places, in the sky and the ocean. And it's it's very hard for me to imagine a life spent entirely indoors or devoid of uh, weather and geographical variety.
1: I have two final questions before you. Before we final hit. Jeopardy. <laughs> what is your all-time favorite meal?
2: Meal. <laughs> Oh my God, I'm such an eater. Well, you've just watched this. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a hog. I'm blessed with my mother's high metabolism, so I can pretty much eat anything. But um, my favorite meal, it would either be something that my friend Ken Frank, who is a chef at a wonderful restaurant called La Toque, I means the cap, the chef's cap. And La Toque is in Northern California. It's in Napa. It would either be anything he's cooked me, or uh, probably one of several great meals at a Japanese restaurant called Asanebo in Los Angeles in Studio City. Owned also by a friend of mine, Tetsuya. And he has as fresh a fish as you can get in Japan. And I'm a I am am a sashimi nut, so I can sit all night and just eat Toro. Just eat that fatty part of the tuna the tuna and be happy as can be.
1: The final question I have for you. This program goes out to over 40 nations around the world. So what would you like to say to all those people that are listening in?
2: Uh, I'm on my way. I'm, my I'm way. coming.
1: All right. We're going to
2: take this around the world. We're going to Bergen. I can just tell you the things that are already booked on the calendar. There's a Glastonbury Festival in England. Uh, we're going to go to uh, the Netherlands. We're going to go to Sweden. We're going to go to... Um, I hope we get this little gig in Paris. I really want to play. You might have heard about Jimmy played there. Jim Mayer told me about it. There's a, a club there. The
1: Mo- Morning Star? Yeah, yeah, the something Morning like club. that.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I've, I, I, we're going to go every place, I hope. You know, I, I don't like it. To, I, I don't have any more kind of uh, regional or national or or ethnic exceptionalism in me than I than I, than I do geographical I just I, I don't I don't believe in any kind of local superiority I'm, I'm just as fascinated by the uh, the Senegalese refugee band as I am you know by uh, uh, the Dave Brubeck Quartet I just love music I love hearing people make music and I, it always comes out of the ground it comes out of people's blood where they live and it's always fascinating. It's always a trip. It's always a, a journey into a culture that's, that at first you think is not yours. And in the end, you realize that what, you know, I heard Jack Nicholson say once when he was getting the director's guild award, he said, I think the question was asked about how he could play so many characters and have them all be relevant and real. And he said, well, it's simple. I think people are more alike than they are different. And I, and I do it.
1: reminds me of something that Barack Obama said. He said, uh,
2: we have that much
1: more in common than that what separates
2: us. Exactly. Well, they could be the same. You never see Jack and, and Obama in the same room at the same <laughs> time. So.
1: Well, it has been a pleasure dining with you and having this chat.
2: My pleasure.
1: My Thank pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: And Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks. I've had fun. Me too. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to The Paul Leslie Hour. And if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit ThePaulLeslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.